Well, our friends at Keeley Companies are proud to welcome Keeley Restoration Services to their family. This team of experts prides themselves on bringing life back to buildings and structures, maintaining their lifespan, and reducing the impact on the environment in the process. Learn more about Keeley Restoration Services by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, thank you, Joe Buck, and hello, my friends. Over the years, we have welcomed hundreds of amazing guests to share their life lessons, to talk about their mistakes, and to celebrate their accomplishments. But with more and more Americans now struggling with their overall happiness, today I wanted to revisit one of our most downloaded episodes and guest of all time. His name is Sean Aker. Sean joined me way back in spring of 2020. It feels like a lifetime ago, I know. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the book, The Happiness Advantage and Big Potential. He spent 12 years at Harvard, where he won more than a dozen distinguished teaching awards and has delivered lectures on positive psychology. It's the most popular class of all time at Harvard. Sean has since become one of the world's leading experts on the connection between happiness and success working with over a third of Fortune 100 companies and also organizations like NASA and the NFL and the Pentagon and the U.S. Treasury. He has traveled to more than 50 countries, speaking of farmers in Zimbabwe, to CEOs in China, to doctors in Dubai, to school children in South Africa. And yeah, you're like, okay, but John, what has he really done? All right, fair enough. Here it is. Oprah. Yeah, that's right. That that Oprah. Oprah did a two-hour episode of Super Soul Sunday with Sean on the science of happiness and what it means for each of us. My friends, as we enter into November, we also enter into a month that we are called to celebrate our life. Not the ease of it, not that everything is going right all the time, but this is indeed the month of gratitude. What better way to enter into November than by revisiting a conversation with a guy that I respect and an expert that I look up to as a beacon of light. Today, you are going to need a notebook and a writing utensil because Sean shares research-based anecdotes like how his Harvard peers did not experience the same high level of gratitude as he. Well, I wonder why. You'll find out. He'll also share three practical tools that will increase your gratitude, elevate your optimism, and multiply your happiness today and throughout the upcoming holiday season. Join me now, my friends, in welcoming back a guy that you're going to fall in love with. His name is Sean Aker. Sean, welcome back to Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think you and I share several commonalities, and one of them, and I hope you're sitting down, audience, one of them is that both Sean Aker and John O'Leary applied to Harvard University. That's right. I did my application as a joke to prove to my friends I could get a rejection letter for Harvard, and I got one. Sean, you did it on a dare. Talk talk about that <laughs> dare and why you went forward with it. 
I didn't think I was going to get into Harvard. I wasn't valedictorian. I didn't get perfect SAT scores. I was a volunteer firefighter. Um, that was part of my essay. Yeah. Um, and so we got an acceptance letter. And to be honest, you know, this is also something we, uh, I'm so glad you're asking these questions because um, I never get to talk about this, but I, I just remember that when I received the acceptance letter, we were so shocked as a family. Like I remember being excited. And then my mom said, hey, don't tell anyone at school because I don't think this is real. <laughs> like she, uh, my parents are very humble people and like I didn't expect it. So they were just like, in case this is a mistake, don't tell anybody. <laughs> and then we couldn't afford it. And then I got a military scholarship three weeks later through the Navy, which suddenly made this thing that wasn't even a possibility become a reality. You know, Sean, I've heard you several times credit this essay as to probably why you got into Harvard. Would you just share with me the essence of what that essay was that you wrote that got you into Harvard? I think it was talking about how um, I, one, grew up in this place where no one expected to go to Harvard. No one from my school had. Um, I didn't know anyone who had. The only people I'd, the only thing I knew about Harvard was from from the movies. And, you know, I, I'd never traveled outside the country before. So I had a very small worldview in life, but I was hungry to learn so much more. So I think part of that got across in the essay. Um, I think part of, the other thing I, I really focused on was talking about how that I would be happy and content um, anywhere, like if I got in or not. Um, but if I got in, I want to be there for the other people, that I would make sure that they had an amazing time there as well. And I'd see it as such a privilege that um, I'd try and help other people see what a privilege it was as well. And um, I don't know what got me in, um, but I do know... Uh, I had a friend later on whose mom was on the admissions committee, and she remembered me as the f- firefighter from Waco. Hmm. So um, I know that had an influence somehow. Well, you walk onto campus your first day. It is in Boston. It is in Mass. It is an amazing university campus. You grab your breakfast, and you look up, and it's you know stained glass windows, chandeliers, incredible wood beams. You're grateful. And they, yet as you go around your experience freshman year, you recognize that many of the, your peers aren't as appreciative of their experience, of their opportunities. Why do you think that was? Um, that, that was a shock. Um, I felt so grateful to be there. It was uh, stunning. I just assumed everyone else would be so happy to be there as well. Um, but what I started noticing was there were a lot of students that just come expected to be there. So their expectations were matched, and they actually didn't feel the type of happiness I felt when something came above my expectations. Um, but in addition to that, I, very quickly, our brains started focusing not just on the privilege of being there. Your brain forgets about that and starts then refocusing on the workload, the stresses, the hassles, the complaints, the frustrations, um, and what's going to happen to me four years from now. Mm. So very quickly, they shift from, this is amazing, I got into the school I really wanted to go to, to what am I going to do next? Um, then, then I'll feel happy once I, you know, have an investment banking job or get into this graduate school, or one, I'll be happy once I leave here and have a job. Whatever it is that they were looking forward to, they started looking forward instead of where they were. Sounds a lot like not only what Harvard students do, but for all graduates of uh, of life. Many of us have that same uh, weakness of rather than embracing the gift and the miracle of the moment, we look forward. We look forward. So you you said in some of your research that 80% of Harvard students report being depressed over the previous four years, which is stunning. And even more painful is to hear this, that 10% have considered suicide in the past 12 months. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's it was stunning. Um, and now that I've traveled to do this in more than 50 countries, we realized it wasn't just these privileged Ivy League students who were experiencing this. It's exactly what you were just describing. It was how the brain views the world. Um, I think one of the very first uh, aha moments I had, but that shifted my entire thinking around happiness uh, was when I started doing the psychological research on those Harvard students and realized that um, that the success wasn't yielding the happiness that we expected because every time your brain has a success, your brain is designed to change the goalpost of what success looks like. It's designed to do that, right? So whatever you thought was the goal that's going to make you super happy in life, as soon as you get there, your brain's designed to change it very quickly. Um, it's why we don't stop, you know, if you put Legos together as a four-year-old, you don't think, well, I'm done. <laughs> I'm, I'm successful in life and that's it, right? Um, as soon as you put those Legos together, you want to try something else and you want to mm -hmm. see what your brain's capable of. That's actually highly adaptive. We want to see what the brain's capable of. We want to keep pushing. We don't want to become complacent. Um, actually, so all of that's good. The only problem is where happiness fits in it, right? Because we keep thinking to ourselves, if I work harder and achieve this goal and or achieve this position in my life or this good thing happens, then I'll feel happier. And that scientifically and empirically doesn't happen um, because one, because the goalpost changes very quickly for that, for the brain. But also we found that if your success rates actually do rise for the next five year period of time, mm -hmm. happiness levels basically statistically flatline. They don't move very much. So what we started to, to think is that happiness and success were actually separate from one another. Um, but then we realized that if you just switch around the research um, if you find some way of, instead of watching somebody who becomes more successful and then testing their happiness, if you switch around and you find a way of getting somebody to become happier, you raise their gratitude for the present, you deepen their social networks, you raise their levels of optimism. If one of those things occur, what we saw was all of their success rates started to rise mm -hmm. dramatically. Their business outcome, educational outcome. So we got so excited that maybe we had the formula backwards. This idea of optimism, gratitude, and social connectivity, Th three buzzwords you just used. Right now, I think all three of those are at great risk of fading into darkness. Take this idea of happiness from the research projects at, the, at Harvard into how we can apply them in real life as we read headlines, as we see stock markets dip. How, how do we remain happy and focused on the things we can control when it feels like there's nothing we can control? It's a really big question, but I think it's actually one of the most important questions we could ask because I feel like happiness in good times is actually more of a luxury item. Um, when things get difficult, when challenge rises, happiness actually has an even more beneficial effect upon the outcomes for that person. Um, so in the darkest times is when we actually need optimism, gratitude, and social connection the most. So when I when I started doing this research, I was starting with the Harvard students, but the, I realized very quickly that this is amazing that we can raise someone's levels of happiness. Um, and so I wanted to share it with other people. So I started doing it with companies and went uh, to one or two companies. And then um, that was in 2008. Then the global economy collapsed. So I actually got started doing this happiness research in the midst of a time where the banks were failing. We had no idea if the entire currency system was going to be able to continue. Mm -hmm. We had no idea when it was going to recover. And I started working with actually the banks who had lost the ability to pay their people 
but still wanted to move forward so that they could keep everything afloat. Um, so what we got to do is to battle test this research to see if, if you can raise someone's levels of happiness when times are challenging. So with coronavirus, with people having to shutter their business, with um, what we're finding is in the midst of all of those changes, it's crucial to understand what we're talking about in terms of happiness. Um, what we're not talking about is irrational optimism. I gave a talk one time to a group of CEOs of software companies. And afterwards, one of the CEOs offered to drive me to the airport to talk about the research. Uh, I was so excited to talk to this guy because I thought maybe we could test some things out at this company. And I got into his really fancy car and he immediately started to go and he started zooming up and down the streets. He was going so fast and weaving in and out of cars and I was holding on for dear life. And and I looked at him (laughs) and I was trying to like get him to slow down a little bit or get his brain focused on it because he was talking so fast. And I was like, um, I'm, I'm sorry, you don't wear a seatbelt? He said, no, Sean, I listened to your talk. I love your research. I'm an optimist too and kept driving. <laughs> so um, I was like, no, you're crazy. That doesn't, that, that doesn't right. count as optimism, right? And the reason I'm telling that story is that, that um, optimism is great for a lot of things. It doesn't stop reality from impinging upon you. It doesn't stop a car from hitting you. What optimism does is allows your brain to be the most adaptive possible when the negative does occur, which I, I think encapsulates part of your own story, um, your own history gro- growing up. And But also, I, I think it gives a, us a path forward because what we don't want is people to be irrationally optimistic, which means right. if you sugarcoat the present, you make terrible decisions for the future. You don't solve the problems you need to. And people stop believing in your leadership advice because they think you're divorced from reality. You can see that on social media. You can see people going between two different responses to all the negative that's going on. You can see everything's going to be fine. We don't even talk about it type of idea, which is turning more of a blind eye to some of the problems. But then the the people on the other side are like, you're not seeing anything. And they think that you're divorced from reality. The other side is you see a problem and you assume it's permanent and pervasive, that it affects everything automatically, that there's no other good parts, and that it's permanent. It'll probably exist for at least a very long time. And what happens when that occurs is the brain gets paralyzed. So on the one hand, you have people that aren't solving the problems because they're turning a blind eye to it. The other side isn't solving the problems because they feel like that there's nothing you can do, right? The middle path is what I study, which is rational optimism, which starts with, with a realistic assessment of the present but maintains the belief that eventually my behavior will matter if linked to the right people. And I I love this because I think that that allows us the middle path of being able to see problems, but not get paralyzed by them. As long as we believe our behavior will eventually matter if linked to the right people. So Sean, I, I hear your voice. I've heard many of your talks, read your books, love it. You're married, you got two healthy kids, you're, you're living the high life. And I think as a listener right now, they might be at risk of thinking, well, of course this guy's happy. He's got his life laid out. He's got best-selling books. He's probably got more money than anybody else I know. Of course he's happy. And yet you yourself have admitted bravely, I think, that you've dealt with bouts of depression while teaching happiness. That's right. Um, actually, while I was at Harvard, you know, in this incredible environment, I graduated and I realized if I left, they might, they might not let me back in. So I just stayed. <laughs> when I graduated that summer, I moved from the senior dorms down to the freshman dorms and lived there for the next eight years. In exchange for room and board, which is what I needed to live there, um, they give you 30 freshmen a year. You live in the dorms with them. You live in the trenches there with them. You eat all your meals with them and you counsel them during that 
first year of being in a hyper-competitive environment because they know that the students are coming from all over the world with different backgrounds being thrust together. And they've all been these bright lights in their own community. And now, you know, 50% of them are below average, right, um, mm-hmm. in that environment. There's a lot of shattering that occurs. So they put these, these graduate students in the dorms to be their friends and to be there and counsel them. So my job was to make sure that they didn't go through depression and while I did this, I went through two years of depression myself. There's a lot of reasons why it happened. Um, one of them was, you know, coming from Waco, I had had one vision of the world. And so I went to divinity school and realized that there were so many other versions of the world. Um, it broke down my, my beliefs about the world and I had to rebuild them back up. So for a while, I didn't have beliefs about the world, which was extraordinarily disorienting. Yeah. But also, I was very lonely, right? I was in a hyper-competitive environment. I'm more introverted, so I wasn't sure how really to make friends. I didn't really reach out. And as a result of that, my social connection went. A lot of my faith at the time went. um, And I started feeling down and had no idea what was going on. And then as I kept going deeper and deeper in it, I was studying positive psychology. I was studying uh, faith and religion. And I was there to help counsel these students. And the more I learned about it, the more I'm like, wow, I'm I'm actually depressed. I have no idea how this happened because I'm in this amazing environment. I grew up with great parents. I've always been an optimist. What is going on? And so I thought I could figure it, fix it myself. I, I was good at checking off individual metrics in my life. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll read a self-help book about it and I'll solve this myself. And I kept going deeper and deeper in depression. And I remember, I, you know, I just stopped caring about everything in my life and including caring about whether or not I wanted to get better. At the bottom, I had to turn to my eight closest friends and family and I was like, I, I really need your help. I've been going through depression for more than two years. I don't think I'm ever getting out of this, but I really need your help. And the groundswell of support was amazing. People were calling me, meeting up with me, emailing me, bringing me cupcakes. But as soon as I did, something really important changed. I wrote a book that came out two years ago. And in that book, I shifted from studying what was an individual approach to happiness, which is change your individual habits then your happiness will rise, then Mm -hmm. your success will rise to this idea of realizing that the majority of our happiness and success is interconnected with one another. Um, So I I start the the book with this study where these two researchers out in Virginia found that if you're looking at a hill, you need to climb in front of you. If you look at that hill by yourself, your brain actually shows you a hill that is 20% steeper than a hill of the same height you perceive while standing next to someone who's going to climb it with you. So the inclusion of somebody else looking at that hill with you changes your brain's perspective on that hill by 20%. And now we know it's more for the emotional ones, overcoming depression and anxiety, trying to get out of financial debt, trying to graduate from school, trying to figure out what to do in the midst of challenges from the coronavirus or challenges that are occurring because of Uh, the economy sputtering or challenges that we're feeling caring for aging parents or for sick kids. What we're finding is those hills change dramatically, whether or not we think we're alone overcoming this challenge or we're with other people overcoming it. So I actually got to speak at Camp Pendleton to six battalions of Marines. One of the Marines raised his hand and said, you know, our job is threat detection. Do you want us to just be optimistic and just ignore all these threats that we see within our world? And no, this comes right back to where we were just talking about the rational optimism, this idea that 
we need to realistically assess the present, see all those problems, but believe we can overcome them. And one of the very first things that the Marines do in, in basic training is it doesn't matter if you can get over the wall. What we care about is that the entire unit gets over the wall, right? So they break down this idea of right. that is about the ecosystem of potential around us. So how do we find a way of being able to make it so that we could actually be connected as we pursued happiness and success instead of trying to do it alone? So the more I've done this work, I've come in contact with people who have um, stage four cancer. I worked with the National MS Society, worked with students that in a shanty town in South Africa that had dirt floors. Like I've I've met these people whose challenges in life externally are so much higher than my own right. currently. I feel that there's so much that um, links us together as we overcome these challenges because it turns out that I think a lot of people have gone through these dark times and depression, and it looks different for a lot of people, but we're finding that it could have that optimism, gratitude, and social connection work universally to help people to, to get out of it. So, Sean, with, with the headlines and knowing the statistics that about half of us feel isolated and many of us deal with anxiety, many of us are struggling with depression, and many of us actually believe that the best days are behind us, not in front of us. Like this is just not only for me and our listeners, but everybody else out there today who is not listening to our voice in our conversation. What is a couple things we can do every day to begin pushing through that darkness and coming back into the light? There's two, two habits that we've been looking at and researching that seem to have a huge impact upon people. Um, so one thing we haven't quite covered yet is the idea that maybe we can't change. I think some people think you're genetically positive, right? Like that's how you've been so incredible in your career and overcoming challenges and the, the things that you face within your life. And of course, it must be easy for you. And right. And I get the same critique leveled at me as well. Well, I know I have genes for family history of depression, right? Mm -hmm. So fight against genes to do this. So what we're looking at is can people change anyway, right? So as people right. are feeling all those feelings you're talking, you're describing on, there's a camp of researchers who think, or, and there's a lot of the world that thinks you just can't change, right? Sorry, that's your genes. And you just didn't win the genetic lottery. That's not what we found in our research at all. I mean, I'm working with all the schools in Flint, Michigan, in the middle of cyclical poverty, these hospitals doing life or death decisions, cancer patients, and you know, people with MS, unemployed groups. Uh, what we're finding is that we can take somebody who it seems genetically predisposed towards pessimism and getting them to do a few small tweaks to their day, um, we can actually get them to dramatically change. One of those is as people feel like the best is behind them or they find themselves you know, seeing a threat on Twitter and then they just go down a rabbit's hole of all mm -hmm. the negative threats that can occur within their life. That's our genes. I met up with the former U.S. Surgeon General, uh, Vivek Murthy. We were talking about this problem about people think they can't change. And he was like, it's so fascinating because if everyone listening to this has genes for teeth that should rot out by age 15 in a high sugar society, right? Like that's what it is to be human if yeah. what we are is genetic. So what it is to be human is just to have rotted out teeth. Unless you magically get an entire group of people to buy a toothbrush and toothpaste and every single day do this 45-second habit. But if you do so, what it is to be human changes. And I believe the same thing is true with happiness. I believe that the majority of us have genes that predispose us to scanning for threats and we'll find more and more threats within our life. As we age, we'll feel like that the best is behind us and that there's only deterioration ahead of us. And we can think that's what it is to be human. But what we've been finding is if you get somebody to do a two-minute positive habit, 
like brushing their teeth, yeah. but mentally, we find that what it is to be human changes. So real quickly, those two that we've been studying the most, one is we got people to practice scanning for three new things that they were grateful for that had occurred over the past 24 hours. So in the midst of seeing all the new news about what's going on negatively in terms of, in the midst of that, that realistic assessment of the present, you also have your brain practice scanning for three things that you're grateful for in the midst of that. In the past, I used to tell people, think of three things you're grateful for. And that actually doesn't work because around day three or four, everyone starts repeating. They're grateful for the work, their family. kids, bed. Exactly, right? So it doesn't matter what you're grateful for. What matters is the scanning. So we got people to scan for three new things that they're grateful for. When you do that, your brain actually starts to build essentially a background app that passively scans your day for things you're going to mention the next day that you're grateful for. So without having to do anything different in your life, just creating a habit of this, your brain starts to pick up on these pinpricks of positivity that are going on over the course of the day. Sean, for me, my father's wrath and my mother's dirty look was probably why I started brushing my teeth at age three or whatever (laughs) age it was. And probably wanting to lay closer to my wife is why I brush it today as an older guy. How do we build in a habit, not just around brushing our teeth? I think most of us have that one figured out, but around choosing gratitude, because you and I have the same heart around this, and then getting people to not only hear it on a podcast or read it in a book, but actually to do it at night or in the morning, man, that's hard. And to do it as a ritual where it becomes a habit and begins to inform their life afterwards, how do we begin to do that? Maybe people have to take it the easiest way possible. If you're already brushing your teeth, which I'm assuming everyone is listening to this, then while you brush your teeth, take that time to think of the three new things you're grateful for that have occurred over the past 24 hours. People who do this, we find that they can go from genetic low-level pessimist to low-level optimist in 21 days. Six months later, their testing is low to moderate level of optimist. (laughs) Four-year-old children around a dinner table who do this, at the dinner table as you sit down with your kids, if you have them think of three new things that they're grateful for and you participate as well, it turns out six months later, before and after school, those kids who were predisposed towards negativity, who are already testing as pessimist, they're now testing as low-level optimist, which is life-changing, so much better than that's my pessimistic kid, that's my optimistic kid. Um, another great way we've seen of people taking gratitude and making a ritual out of it I met a grandmother in Flint as we've been working with all the schools. And she said she would have all of her grandkids sit down at a table and she'd listen for anything good that was going on in their lives, anything. And she'd write it down on scrap sheets of paper, crumple it up and put it into this little fishbowl or this glass jar. And then when her grandkids would come back over, she would sit them down again. And then she would read out all these blessings that were going on in their life. And I heard that and I was like, wow, we have so much to be grateful for. My wife and I, we've got to be doing this, right? So we started doing it. Both times we've done it, 80% of the things we wrote down, we've forgotten about. Mm. 80% of the blessings in our life, we would have lost access to. But I could tell you right now, every fire I need to put out in my inbox right now, I know all those negatives and threats are going on in my inbox, but my brain would have lost access to the blessings had we not created this ritual around it. And now we keep our favorite gratitudes in this bowl, and it's in a visual place. So it's a constant reminder in the kitchen of not only how much good has been going on, but also that we need to do it for that day. And we go back and read our favorite ones out of there because we leave our favorite ones in. That's so good. When I hear a podcast, I'm always looking for one takeaway. And so listeners right now, if you're looking for yours, I, I think you may have just heard it, whether it's while you're brushing your teeth 
while you're gathered around the family. And and Sean, I'm going to take the challenge. I Like you, I'm a speaker and author and a podcast host and remarkably grateful to be with my kids. So tonight and then going forward while I'm with these little ones, we're going to take the Sean Acre Gratitude Challenge, write down something we're grateful for, throw it in the little can in the middle of the table and celebrate dinner and life together. I'm going to give you uh, one of your quotes back and then ask you seven questions that we ask every one of our guests, Sean Aker. So one of my favorite quotes from you, I I wrote down two dozen. We don't have time for two two dozen, so I'll pick one. Happiness is not the belief that we don't need to change. It is the realization instead that we can. Tell me what that means. I I feel like so often we think, you know, I'll be happy when... I'm rich or powerful or beautiful or get into the school or have these types of friends. And I meet some of those celebrities or rich folks and the happiness didn't happen for them. They actually feel more jaded because it didn't occur for them. But I feel like that the thing that causes the least amount of happiness for us is the perceived loss of growth. Mm. There's uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Um, You start at basic needs all the way up to self-actualization where you like are finding really who you are as a person, you're able to be that person. Um, and people ask me where happiness fits into that. And I think you can have happiness at any point of that, as long as you feel like you're moving up upward, right? right? right. That's to me where happiness comes from. Happiness to me isn't something that's complacent that causes us to rest our laurels. To me, happiness is a fuel that says, wow, this happened. I feel so grateful for it. What am I going to do next? So my definition of happiness that I've been using in this research is, the joy you feel moving you towards your potential. It's this emotion you feel in this direction, this directionality towards greater levels of growth. And that growth isn't just having a nest egg or Mm -hmm. a job or that growth is being the type of dad or friend or member of society that you could be. Sean Aker, author, teacher, student, friend, dad, and a a whole lot of other job titles. Seven questions for you now, my friend. Question number one is, what is the best book besides In Awe, which you gave a beautiful <laughs> testimonial to? What is the best book you have ever read? My favorite book is The Great Divorce, which is a very short book by uh, C.S. Lewis. In short, he is about a group of people that live in this gray town, which you come to start to think might be like a hell, mm. and they can get on a bus and go up to heaven. And all they have to do, choose is get on a bus <laughs> to go up to heaven. And you see all the things that stop somebody from choosing greater levels of joy in their life. And you watch it and you, I realize I'm all those people getting off the bus or getting out of line or choosing to get back, go back to the gray town. I love the book because I thought it was a brilliant synopsis of what positive psychology actually was in the future. That's so awesome. And so many folks think heaven is where you might go when you die and they forget that, although that may be true, uh, you don't necessarily need to wait till you're dead to begin moving uh, on the bus toward it. That's right. What a cool book. I, I read that years ago, but it's been a while. What, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in Waco, Texas, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I was really confident um, and not in like a cocky way, but like I would have no problem talking to anyone. I wasn't worried about what people would think about me. So I would just act. And sometimes I think that I finish conversations or podcasts or talks and I wonder, did that really matter? Did Mm. I really have an impact upon somebody's life? You know, why am I doing this? I'll get people after talks like you do that will come up and they'll be like, I I know you hear this all the time, but that was great. Yes, I hear it all the time, but I kind of need to hear it all the time because I keep forgetting that how much this matters and it's easy to feel overwhelmed by 
all the other things, it's easy to feel like you're just yeah. a, a small influence and you realize that maybe somebody really need to hear that message that day. So really quick, one thing I didn't say so far that I think is really important is the gratitude exercise is really good, but doing it externally is even more powerful. If you can just spend two minutes a day writing a two-minute positive email, praising or thanking somebody else, showing gratitude to somebody else, we found that not only does that dramatically improve your levels of happiness, which is amazing using technology to do that, but that positive email creates a ripple effect and a reciprocal loop where you actually start believing that you have deeper social connection and it knits that community together, even if you're starting out a socially isolated place. Those small little things start to make you feel like the relationship you have really do have meaning. So it's about the small things that really, that really do matter. Well said. I'm glad you added it. Sean, if your home caught fire and your little ones and your wife are out safely, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What's the one thing you would grab? I don't know. I've, we've talked about that as a family. I don't, I don't think I have anything. I'm going to make um, you grab one thing. I, I have a guitar that I love. <laughs> it's a broken guitar, but I love how it sounds. I don't think I could replace it even though because I've had it for so long. That's awesome. The guitar is coming out. Sean, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? C.S. Lewis. He's been the biggest influence on my life. Um, he's who I've modeled my career after, and I'd really like to find out what he was like in person, not just in writing. What's your first question for C.S.? Wow, that's a great question. I, I think uh, I want to know what he thinks about me. Honestly, I'd like to tell him about what I've been doing and what I believe, and I'd like to hear if he approves or not. <laughs> like, awesome. If he like agrees with me or he thinks I've completely gone the wrong direction so, or I'm missing something really vital. I look forward to you having that conversation, hopefully not for a long time, but uh, I have a feeling <laughs> it's going to be full of encouragement. Sean, what, what's the best advice you've ever received? My mentor, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar from Harvard, yeah. um, said that you're never as great as you think you are and you're never as bad as you think you are. And at first, I didn't like that quote at all, because I'm like, well, you should always think good things about yourself. But now that I see it all the time, like I swing. Sometimes I think I'm amazing, and I realize how much I don't understand the world or other people, or I'm focused on myself. And other times I'm like, what I do doesn't matter. And then, then you get these amazing emails from people who they heard something right when they needed to. Mm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self, this college sophomore hanging out at Harvard? Make friends. I feel like I kind of wanted friends so badly, and I just waited for them. But I really do believe my grandmother was right. She said, if you want friends, you got to be a friend. And I would have 20-year-old Sean some understanding that everyone feels lonely and insecure, right? So if you feel that, don't let that stop you from feeling socially connected. Like other people's posts online, talk to them, give them praise, tell your teaching fellow you want to meet up with them, tell your teacher how much of an impact they've had upon you, like... These people that we put on pedestals, even our friends, they they actually really need us. And there's very small things we could do that could make us a much better friend. And Sean Aker, the final question is, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I, I don't know. I, I, that's a really tough question I've never been asked before. I, I wanted something along the lines of that he made other people feel understood that uh, happiness was actually possible for them. I, what I say in the end of my talks is that, yes, I believe happiness can change. I think happiness is contagious. I think happiness is an advantage in your life. But really, I think the greatest message in this is that change is radically possible. I mean, I remember being that kid lying on a bathroom floor at Harvard, so depressed, breathing hurt, 
Mm. I had no idea the story could change so much, like your story's changed so much that someday I would be studying happiness, much less that I would think it's possible for people, much less that I get to come on a podcast with you to get to share this with people who might be needing to hear it today. Thank you so much for having me on, mm. but also look how much the story can change. So I think that's what I want people to know is that my life was helping people realize change is possible. My friends, that is Sean Aker reminding us that your life can in fact change, that there is indeed an advantage in choosing happiness, that you have unlimitless big potential in your life. And in spite of some headwinds and headlines, that your best remains in front of you. Sean Aker, I want to thank you for your work, for your ministry, and for your impact. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for your friendship and letting me be be on your show. Honored. My friends, that is Sean Aker. I am John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And if you're looking forward to practicing Sean Aker's useful tips and practicing gratitude, you can always go to our website to learn more about, again, what those tips and tools were. And if you're looking for even more reasons for gratitude or optimism or a reason to believe that the best days remain in front of us, listen to my conversation with New York Times bestselling author Greg Easterbrook. It's episode 121. It's another phenomenal conversation packed with reassuring fact-based optimism that will inspire a positive perspective today, tomorrow, and each day going forward. You can learn more about either of these conversations and all of our episodes by visiting johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. I'm going to say that again, because if you're like me, you're just starting to type by the time I get to the end of it. So here we go one more time. Visit me right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Greg Easterbrook is episode 121, and every episode leading up to that and then following that is also worth checking out. So my friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community and for believing like we do, that the foundation is firm, the headwind is real, but the best days are yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. you to think about how much life has changed in the last 10 years, professionally, technologically, politically, globally, in your relationships. Think about how much change you have experienced, how different life is. Well, for the last 10 consecutive years, Keeley Companies has been named a top workplace by St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The most important assets are their people also known as the Keelians, and are credited as the backbone of their business. You can learn more about the Keeley Company's dedication to their employees by visiting keeleycompanies.com.